Our text this morning as we hear from the living God and his word is 1 Samuel 14. Welcome to Christ the King or welcome back. If you're among those returning from time away this summer, if you are here newly or returning, you will find, of course, that we are entering this new academic year almost halfway through the book of 1 Samuel. And if you know anything about the book of 1 Samuel, you would know that we're going to meet David soon in our study. But this morning, we find ourselves continuing in the story of Saul. Saul, the first king of Israel. And as we learned two weeks ago, if you were with us, Saul, the last of his own lineage to be king. Your kingdom shall not continue, Samuel said to him in verse 14 of chapter 13. Do you remember where we were two weeks ago? We were in Gilgal in chapter 13, where Saul was to go to wait seven days for Samuel, from whom was to come the guidance from the Lord regarding how to proceed concerning the threat of the Philistine army. Because it had been Saul's son, Jonathan, who had stirred things up by attacking the Philistines in Gibeah. And the situation is dire. The Philistines had encamped in Michmash in numbers so great that the narrator said they were like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Saul needed to know from the Lord what to do next, and that meant he needed to hear from the Lord's prophet. Only Samuel didn't come. And it's late in day number seven. And the people are deserting him. And Saul's done waiting. And so he begins to make the offerings that Samuel was to make when he arrived. And the verdict then is swift when Samuel shows up on the scene. You have done foolishly, Samuel says in verse 13 of chapter 13. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. And then the text says, Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. That was chapter 13. You likely noticed Samuel's not there at all in chapter 14, is he? The narrative continues. Saul numbers the people towards the end of chapter 13. He's down to 600. Israel's surrounded in all sides. The Philistines are the ones with the technology of metal going into battle. That's where chapter 13 leaves off. So verse 22 of chapter 13 says, So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. Verse 23, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. And here we are. It's the day of the battle now. And everything favors the Philistines, right? But you've just heard chapter 14 read quite well, frankly. Karina, thank you for that long reading. You've heard chapter 14 read. You know Israel's not going to be defeated. 
you could say the climax of the whole chapter is in verse 23. In fact, if you have your Bible there, look at it, because what does verse 23 say? So the Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord saved Israel. And then with that clear statement in your mind and in your heart, look ahead to verse 45, because the situation is then made even clearer. Verse 45, then the people said to Saul, who just ordered Jonathan to be killed, right? The people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Now, come again. Didn't the Lord save Israel that day? Yes, he did. And whom did he use to achieve the victory that day? Well, he used Jonathan, not Saul. Jonathan. Or as the people put it later in verse 45, it was Jonathan who worked with God this day, says there. Saul didn't work with God. Jonathan did. That's the narrative significance of chapter 14 within the flow of what's happening here in the reign of Saul, which means that our goal this morning is to answer, why Jonathan? What is it about Jonathan that the Lord uses? How does Jonathan work with God as he worked this great salvation in Israel? Which, of course, means that the flip side of that question is, why not Saul? Because chapter 14 presents the contrast between Jonathan and Saul. And at times the details of that contrast are obvious. And at times the nuances are there, but they're not clear at first. And as is our habit and my want in particular, we're going to get into some of the details, uh, maybe too deeply along the way. So hang in there and, and keep your Bibles going and don't lose heart. If you feel I'm too far down into one particular moment, I'll come back up. We're going to consider in this sermon just two things. Firstly, the faith of Jonathan. And then secondly, the foolishness of Saul. The faith of Jonathan and then the foolishness of Saul. But uh, we need to do a little more setting the scene. And so we have a bit of an introduction first here in verses 1 to 5 of our chapter. So chapter 14, verse 1. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. You see this set up immediately for this chapter. This is the day of battle now from the end of chapter 13, and Jonathan knows his plans would not meet with his father's approval. We may guess at why. And then verse 2 tells us something else, that Saul was staying, or literally sitting, in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave, or many translations read, under the pomegranate tree at Migron. So the contrast not subtle. Jonathan's planning this audacious action, while Saul's further back in the hills, further away from the enemy, encamped with his 600 men around a pomegranate tree, Samuel having left him. And then we learn that among the men with Saul is Ahijah. 
Verse 3, look at the details here. With Saul are these men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. Now, those of you who've been with us from the early chapters of Samuel, you have a sense of what's going on here now. The disclosure that Ahijah was a nephew of Ichabod isn't exactly customary information in a genealogy. You don't normally talk about the father and then the father's brother. But the narrator is deliberately drawing our attention to this connection because do you remember Ichabod? The glory has departed is what his mother said when she named him at the end of her life in chapter 4. After his father Phineas had died in battle, the curse on his grandfather Eli, the priest in Shiloh having been fulfilled, remember that Eli's line was no longer to serve as the priests of the Lord. We learned that back in chapter 2. So where are we here at the start of chapter 14? We're here with a king whose dynasty has been rejected, being assisted by a priest whose priestly line has been rejected. And the narrator makes a point of saying that it's Ahijah who's the one wearing the ephod. Just flag that. You're like, what's an ephod? We'll come back to it. Becomes important a little later. To finish the introduction, verses 4 and 5 give us the topography lesson that we need to understand to make sense of any of this. The text reads, Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. Well, literally, the Hebrew says a tooth of rock on this side and a tooth of rock on that side. And the name of the one was Bozes, which means something like slippery. And the name of the other is Sena, which means something like thorny. In other words, not very passable crags of rock. Between these two rock outcroppings was a deep wadi that would most likely have been considered impassable by any sane person, which is just what Jonathan's counting on in this passage. Verse 5, the one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, which is where the Philistines are, right? The other on the south in front of Geba, which is where, of course, the Israelites are. That's the context. Jonathan's plan, Saul and who's with him, and the topography of this situation. With all that in place, then, we come to the faith of Jonathan, and we see it right away in verse 6. Look there at verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And what I suggest to you is that it's that statement that gives us the clearest picture of Jonathan's faith and so I think I can begin by making this simple initial point that faith is not the same thing as optimism, is it? We already know that the circumstances for Israel are dire. Faith is able to arise even when no reason for optimism exists, which is not to say that faith doesn't have reasons. 
Jonathan clearly indicates his reasons. Faith arises in this kind of a situation because it looks not to the circumstances, but to God. Because what's at the foundation of Jonathan's faith? It's at the end of verse 6, 4, he says, Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Yes? Faith. All true faith in God has this at its foundation. Genesis 18, verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Job 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things. Jeremiah 32, verse 17, nothing is too hard for you. Luke 1, verse 37, Mary's words, nothing will be impossible with God. Matthew 19, verse 26, with God, all things are possible. True faith in God is possible because there's nothing that can hinder him. The circumstances are not the issue to faith, including your own ability or your own cleverness or whatever. Jonathan doesn't say, perhaps the Lord will act for us, for we are rather clever. The root of it isn't his own ability. It's in the Lord's power. And so Jonathan has great expectation of what God can do. But notice that Jonathan does not have presumption. The language is very important here. It may be that the Lord will work for us, he says. It's as if Jonathan is saying God can do mighty works with very small resources. And God may be glad to do it in this case. How can we know unless we place ourselves at his disposal? It may be, he says. Perhaps. Listen to what one commentator says on this point, because he says it far better than I could. Many in our own day think otherwise, this commentator writes. They think that to say perhaps cuts the nerve of faith. That if faith is faith, it must always be certain, dogmatic, and absolutely positive. Faith, however, must not be confused with arrogance. Jonathan's perhaps is part of his faith. He both confesses the power of Yahweh and retains the freedom of Yahweh. Faith does not dictate to God as if the Lord of hosts is its errand boy. Faith recognizes its degree of ignorance and knows it has not read a transcript of the divine decrees for most situations. I love that. And I love the armor bearer's response to it and to Jonathan here in verse 7. Do all that is in your heart, he says. Do as you wish, Jonathan. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Literally, the Hebrew reads, I am with you, according to your heart. I don't think that's a throwaway sentence. Remember last time how we started 
two weeks ago how we started the sermon with Psalm 14, verse 1, which says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Well, here's the opposite. Jonathan, the armor bearer, has it to rights. It's all about the heart. And Jonathan's heart trusts the Lord. Jonathan has faith. And so then we get this test that Jonathan devises. And sure enough, verse 12 says, the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer, that is the Philistine men, and they said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. Because, you see, they didn't think Jonathan with this one companion would actually do that. You see, this is not some small hill we're talking about. They're loaded with armor coming up this rocky crag in battle gear. Jonathan knows they don't think he's coming. This is exactly why he set up this whole scenario. He sent to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Do you notice that? Not my hand, the hand of Israel. 20 of the Philistines fall, verse 14 says, but of greater significance then is what follows. There was a panic in the camp, in the field, among all the people, the garrison, even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic, the text says. Though the Hebrew leaves little doubt as to what's happening here, because it literally says, it became a trembling of God because the Lord was in it. He gave Jonathan and the Israelites that day ultimately the victory, which is to say what the high point of our chapter says. The Lord saved Israel that day because as the people will later relate, Jonathan worked with God to bring about this great salvation in Israel. How did Jonathan do that? By faith. And all of that is meant to stand in clear contrast then to the foolishness of Saul. As clear as the faith of Jonathan is here, the main burden of chapter 14, narratively, if that's a word, <laughs> within the narrative of Samuel at this point, the main burden of the chapter is to reveal then Saul's foolishness. And it does that in a number of ways. And let me try at least to touch on these as we skim through the chapter now. And some of these are obvious. Some of them are going to take a little more work. So hang in there with me. I'm going to call three strikes against Saul in this chapter. We start in verse 16. The watchman of Saul in, in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, it says in verse 16, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. There go the Philistines. They're melting away. It's the Lord's doing, we know. But Saul seems to suspect something regarding Jonathan. So he asks who's gone from them. And it's reported that Jonathan isn't there. And then verse 18 says, so Saul said to Ahijah, remember him? The priest who's the grandson of Eli. Bring the ark of God, the great grandson, excuse me, bring the ark of God here. Except, if I may, I wish that there was a footnote in the ESV Bibles that you're looking at, as there is in mine, to indicate that it's not entirely clear that ark of God is the right reading at that point. Because there are several translations and many scholars that instead say the reading should be 
bring the ephod here. Now, the specifics as to why that translation is a possibility would get us way bogged down. But you'll recall, you'll recall how the narrator had noted that Abijah was wearing the ephod back in verse 3. Remember? It seems then that Saul in this moment recognizes that it might actually be important to find out what the Lord expects him to do now. And so the way in which that would be done, in particular now that Samuel's no longer on the scene, would be to call for the ephod. Now the ephod. <laughs> the ephod is a priestly garment that's described in Exodus chapter 28. You can read about that later if you want. Among other things, you would read that the ephod that the priest wore contained what was called the urim and the thummim. And we heard that mentioned later in the reading, didn't we? These were devices used in ancient Israel to obtain the guidance of the Lord. You would encounter that in several places in the Old Testament. We do not fully understand what they were, frankly. There's theories, but to be honest, we don't know for sure. The point is, it's not too surprising that Saul would call here for the ephod. In fact, if you want confirmation that this is a reality, two other times later in 1 Samuel with David, this exact thing happens. And the same Hebrew verb is used in the calling for the ephod so that, for example, in 23 verse 9, David says to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. And then he poses a question regarding what Saul's going to do. And then again in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, verse 7, David says to Abiathar the priest, bring me the ephod. Same verb. And David inquires of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answers him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake. We don't know exactly how this worked, but the ephod was called for. The questions were posed and answer would come. That's the pattern. The priest is involved. So here Saul calls for the ephod, if you'll accept that change of translation. The ark, as far as we know, is still in Kiriath-Jerim. But then Saul doesn't even wait long enough to receive the direction it might give, you see. Listen to how the New Living Translation here reads this. The New Living Translation, which I think has accurately, cap accurately captured the nuance here and many other places in this chapter. But here's verse 17 in the NLT. Call the roll and find out who's missing, Saul ordered. And when they checked, they found that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. Then Saul shouted to Ahijah, bring the ephod here. For at that time, Ahijah was wearing the ephod in front of the Israelites. But while Saul was talking to the priest, the confusion in the Philistine camp grew louder and louder. So Saul said to the priest, never mind. Let's get going. Never mind. Let's get going. Or in literal Hebrew idiom, you have it in the ESV, withdraw your hand is the translation that's there in the ESV, right? Stop. Stop the process. Saul didn't wait for an answer from the Lord. He went to immediately engage the Philistines in battle. No time to wait for a word from the Lord. Sound familiar? 
chapter 13. So one commentator writes, Saul concluded that it was more important for him to join in the battle immediately than it was to wait for instruction from the Lord, suggesting an unhealthy confidence in his own ability to achieve success in the impending military encounter. Strike one. <laughs> then we come to verse 24. Remember that verse 23 I had suggested was the high point. The Lord saved Israel that day. Despite Saul's rashness, the Lord's still at work. All these folks who had abandoned earlier come into it, and it's not even doesn't even seem that Saul had much to do with anything. But it clearly hadn't been what it might have been. Seems to be the point of much of the rest of chapter 14, because verse 24 begins a flashback. Hebrew narrative often works this way. We now get a piece of the story that looks back to earlier in the day. Because even as we know that the Lord saves Israel that day, verse 24 then says, the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So see, we're back in time. So, verse 24 says, Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food, the text says. Now why relate this incident? The men were hard pressed, the text says. That same language had been used, if you remember it, in early in chapter 13, verse 6, where it says that the Israelites were hard pressed and they hid themselves because they're afraid. So the key here is in Saul's response. And to put it simply, does Saul then, in the people's terror, does he call on his men to trust in the Lord, to fight for them as they find themselves hard-pressed? No. Instead, he lays on them an oath, a threat of punishment, not to eat. Why do that? Well, there's no clear answer, but... I'm inclined to think it's either to avoid the kind of mass desertion that he'd experienced in chapter 13 or to coerce his troops into intense action. But either way, it's an attempt to motivate them by fear. They're explicitly being motivated by fear, not of the Lord, but of Saul. You can't eat until the job's finished. And if they do, they know the consequences. But notice what it is in doing this that Saul's aiming for here. Look again at the wording. Until it is evening, Saul says, and I am avenged on my enemies, he says. Now, what could be more in contrast to what Jonathan's words were earlier, right? Remember Jonathan saying, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Saul doesn't mention the Lord. His is a self-centered attitude that fails to acknowledge that ultimately the battle is the Lord's, not his own. Strike two. Thirdly then, Saul's stupid oath only then weakens his men's ability to do what they're charged with doing. And of course, Jonathan hadn't been there to hear what Saul had commanded, so this sets up the whole final scene of chapter 14. Jonathan had gone and ate some of the honey in the woods. My daughters are very interested in this part of the story. And when the people tell him then about the oath that his father had imposed, Jonathan responds in verse 29 this way. 
My father has troubled the land. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Get it? New information here. The Lord did save Israel, but it turns out the defeat among the Philistines was not great. Saul's actions had, in fact, served as a hindrance to Israel's success, as an impediment to the full realization of the Lord's deliverance. Do you remember what Samuel was told Saul was supposed to do when he would be anointed king? He was to deliver his people from the Philistines. He doesn't do that. Saul becomes the opponent rather than the accomplice to the fulfillment of the Lord's purpose for his people. And then what's more, when the day's over and the troops are so faint and hungry, they butcher the animals that they had plundered from the Philistines and they begin to eat them ravenously without draining the blood, which of course is a violation of covenantal law. Back in Leviticus and other passages, and Saul hears about it. And then this man... This man who did not obey God in chapter 13, who expressed no confidence in God when faced with his enemies, who devised the crazy plan to save himself by starving his troops, now sounds so concerned about the people's act of disobedience. And he orders them not to eat the meat with the blood still in it and provides a stone on which they can kill the animals and drain the blood. And at no point is there any indication that Saul realizes or recognizes that it was his own prohibition of eating that had occasioned their failure to follow the ritual law. Right? So verse 35 says, and Saul built an altar to the Lord, which kind of sounds positive, but literally the Hebrew says he began to build an altar to the Lord. I'm not making that up. He began to build an altar to the Lord. Apparently, never completed because of his desire, which is immediately expressed in verse 36. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And that's strike three. I mean, this doesn't sound right, does it? Is this what the Lord wanted him to do? Does Saul even care? The people say, uh, do whatever seems good to you. Someone else has to remind Saul of God. But the priest said... Let us draw near to God here, Saul. That's a good idea. It's, in fact, this is the only time in the whole Old Testament that a priest instructs someone to use the ephod. In all probability, the inquiry is done by means of the priests, the Urim and the Thummim, which again, we don't know a lot about what that looked like. Verse 37, however, says Saul inquired of God in this way. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? Silence. The first of two silences, actually. But he did not answer him that day, the text says. Do you remember back when Samuel was warning the people about desiring a king? And he said, the Lord will not answer you in that day. Here we are. What does Saul do? He just charges ahead. He just assumes that God's silence is someone else's fault rather than his. 
Verse 38, and Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son. What do you think Saul's suspecting here? He shall surely die. At which point Saul's met by a second silence. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. You feel this? You feel how alone Saul is? He forces an answer, but we know it's all wrong. Saul should never have made that oath. The people know Jonathan did nothing wrong. In fact, the Lord saved them using Jonathan and not Saul that day. So in verse 45, it's the people who know better than their king. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. And Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines. And the Philistines went to their own place. They're still there. This wasn't the resounding defeat. It might have been. And it's all because of Saul. Look at the fool says in his heart, there is no God. We've already seen where Jonathan's heart is at. Where's Saul's heart? And I, I admit to you, it might be challenging to see it at first because Saul has this way of covering his self-centered and imprudent behavior with pious language and religious acts, doesn't he? So in verse 34, he says, do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. And in verse 35, he begins to build an altar to the Lord. And in verse 37, he sought divine counsel after someone prodded him to do that. And in verse 39, he vows the vow in the name of the Lord. And in verse 41, he prays. And in verse 44, he uses God's name in an oath, uses it. But I like how one commentator puts it. Quote, Saul projects the appearance of a pious and spiritual person. But the reality is that Saul was not acting as a true servant of the Lord. Rather, he sought to coerce the Lord into serving his own ambitions. Do you hear that? He sought to coerce the Lord into serving his own ambitions. Do you do that, brothers and sisters? It seems clear, the commentator continues, it seems clear that in Saul's mind, his son Jonathan was a transgressor deserving of death rather than a man of faith whom the Lord used to give Israel a great victory. But to the reader, the reality seems to be much closer to the reverse. There is before us in chapter 14, the faith of Jonathan and the foolishness of Saul. And it's Jonathan who grasps the nature of the kingdom of God, though he could never become the king, right? And it's Saul who, even though he is the king, misses it entirely. 
it will only be much later in the Bible that we come to know the king who fully grasps the kingdom, who fully trusts and obeys God, who thus has become the pioneer and protector of our faith. But it's Jonathan who can at least be one of the witnesses, the witnesses of faith. One of those witnesses celebrated in Hebrews 11, though he's not named there. Someone in the last service pressed me to clarify that. But I think he's in the cloud, the cloud of witnesses, who by his faith in God points us to Jesus. So this morning, let's let Jonathan point us that way now as we come to the table of our King. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.